Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. This time, the elections bill currently wending its way through Parliament and facing fierce opposition from the House of Lords. There is a rich irony here that the battle to protect our democracy is being fought by unelected peers, but that's the system that we have and that's where we are. In a moment, we'll be hearing from Lord Renard, Chris Renard, former Chief Executive of the Liberal Democrats, their one-time Director of Campaigns and Elections too, and also keen to hear from you if you're listening live. If you've got a contribution to make or a question to ask, if you're listening on your phone in the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see a little microphone, so if you do want to request access to speak then just tap on that microphone and we'll let you through before we get cracking though just a reminder that the byline times can report without fear or favor because we rely entirely for financial support on ordinary readers and listeners we don't have a traditional proprietor we're not here to support any corporate interest there's no one pulling our strings as journalists we just want to tell the truth so feel free to take out a subscription to our monthly newspaper the byline times that helps to support byline radio the podcast and byline tv as well you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com that's bylinetimes.com now the elections bill currently going through parliament well the government has had a majority to ensure a relatively smooth passage so far through the house of commons but it has met fierce resistance in the House of Lords. Let's speak now to Lord Renard, Chris Renard. Uh, Chris, welcome along to Byline Radio. Good to speak to you. Good afternoon. It's very good indeed to be speaking to you about these very important democratic principles. And I've tagged it, democracy in danger. Is that over-egging it? I don't think so. You mentioned, of course, that there's opposition from all the parties apart from the Conservatives in the House of Lords. But there was also some strong opposition in the House of Commons. They have a special select committee, the Public Accounts and Constitutional Affairs Committee, which has a Conservative majority and a Conservative chair. And they were very strongly critical of this bill, critical of the attempt to end the independence of the Electoral Commission, to introduce different rules about how people can vote, to require compulsory photo ID, and that Conservative-dominated committee called for the bill not to proceed or for major changes. Well, let's go through the key points of contention. And one of those is the introduction of voter ID. Why is that so controversial? Well, in many countries, it wouldn't be, because many countries, particularly those in Western Europe, tend to have a national ID card, which everyone is provided with. So if everybody automatically has a national ID card, it's not a problem to present that at a polling station. But in this country, we don't have a national ID card, and the government is suggesting something like a passport or a driving license will be required. But there are over two million people in this country who don't have that form of requisite photo ID. They have other forms of ID, but it's not good enough for the government's proposed rules. And they say that this is needed to prevent impersonation at polling stations. But there's no evidence at all that there is such impersonation at polling stations on any scale to warrant spending £180 million over 10 years on a solution to an almost non-existent problem. You'll be aware that critics of yours will point out that in Northern Ireland, one part of the United Kingdom, 
voter ID is already compulsory at the ballot box. So if it's good enough for Northern Ireland, why isn't it good enough for the rest of the UK? Well, there are clear differences between the politics and culture of Northern Ireland and with Great Britain. In Northern Ireland, it did have to be introduced because after the 1983 general election, there were more than 100 convictions for personation. And so some form of ID was required. And after 20 years, it was photo ID. In Great Britain, that's England, Scotland and Wales, in both of the national elections in 2019, that's the European elections and the general election, there was just one conviction. So one conviction out of almost 50 million votes cast in 2019 suggests it's not needed in Great Britain. But of course, in Northern Ireland, when it was introduced, there was a problem with a lot of people either not voting because they didn't have it, or deciding they went to the polling station, and then they were challenged and said, I'm sorry, this won't do. And there's a Conservative peer, uh, David Willits, who was a very long-standing Conservative MP. He looked at the number of people who didn't vote in Northern Ireland because of this and said, if you then applied that across Great Britain, where there were 20 times as many voters, it could be up to a million people who lose their right to vote. And this is the key fear, isn't it, from people on your side, Chris, that there will be many people, particularly poorer people, particularly people from ethnic minorities, who will be deterred from voting as a result of these requirements. Yes, exactly. We know also it's many of these sorts of people from an underprivileged background or people who are in the private rented sector who move house frequently um, or younger people or people from diverse backgrounds who are not on the voting register to start with. There are perhaps nine million people in the country who should be on the voting register but are either not on it or are incorrectly registered on it. And the government doesn't seem to want to act to get to these people being registered so they have a right to vote. But if they do get registered to vote, they're now putting another barrier in their way to make it harder for these people to vote. But we know there's no real evidence to justify this. Because if you turn up at a polling station and you find someone else appears to have claimed your vote, it's probably simply a clerical error crossing off the wrong name of the polling station. But you can be issued with another ballot paper. So it's not like when you collect a parcel at the post office. If you go to a polling station, someone's claimed your vote, you get another ballot paper which is put aside. And we know how many of these uh, are issued in the general election. And in 2019 in the general election, out of I think something like over 30 million votes, there were only 1,300 replacement ballot papers. That's two per constituency. And most of them were simply as a result of a clerical error. So there's no justification for this. It's the sort of thing that Donald Trump and the Republicans do in the United States to try and suppress the turnout of their most likely opponents. Well, that's a, a big claim, and I, I want to explore that with you, Chris. Let me just, uh, so that we, you know, in the interests of fairness, tell you what Kemi Badenoch, who is the Minister for State in the department responsible for introducing this bill, says. This is in a statement that is the uh, part of the preamble 
to the bill uh, as it's published online, saying that leading international election observers, the Electoral Commission and the author of the 2016 report on electoral fraud, Sir Eric Pickles, all agree there are potential vulnerabilities in our current system. That is why this government is committed to updating outdated security protections around identity at the polls and is introducing a requirement for voters to prove their identity at the polling station. Showing photographic identification is a reasonable and proportionate way to confirm that someone is who they say they are when voting, thus stamping out the potential for voting of fraud to take place and giving electors the confidence that their vote is theirs and theirs alone. When it's put like that, it seems eminently reasonable. Well, I think not. Let me explain why. She references, though, of course, the report by Lord Pickles, as he now is, the former chairman of the Conservative Party, Conservative Council leader, Conservative Cabinet Minister. He looked at these issues and he said, yes, there is a case for having some form of ID when you go to the polling station. But he did not suggest that photo ID was at all necessary, which is much more restrictive. And he suggested, for example, something like a utility bill should suffice to show your name and address. So he did not uh, support this proposal for uh, photo ID in his report. And photo ID was not referenced in the Conservative Party's own manifesto. So I think actually there's a very weak case for saying you need to do anything. But let's agree some sort of compromise. And Lord Willits and people like myself and the Liberal Democrats, we're trying to put forward compromise that might reassure people if any reassurance is required, but not actually be so restrictive. And there could be other forms of ID that could be used that would be perfectly valid, which would reassure anybody if they need reassurance, but don't have a photo on it. I mean, I've suggested myself that the polling card, which is issued by the electoral registration officer to every voter, that should suffice. It has their name and address on it. So if you were to try and go to a polling station and claim someone's vote, you not only have to get through the barriers of the polling station of lying about who you are, etc. You'd actually have to steal the polling card from someone in advance. And if someone had their polling card stolen, then of course a replacement would be issued by the returning officer and a note could be taken that someone's polling card has been stolen and questions put to the polling station. So there was a much simpler solution to this. That solution would cost nothing. The government's so-called solution will cost, they say, about £180 million over 10 10 years. So at best, it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut. That's interesting, though, Chris. You're not saying that we should have no form of voter ID then. Uh, you know, you're, you're willing to compromise that far, that, that there could be a form of ID. But it's this requirement for photo ID specifically that makes it such a deterrent to people. So, uh, as you say, you might need your passport. You, or, or a driving license. Not everybody has a passport. Not everybody has a driving license. And the proposal at the moment, anyway, is that a utility bill would not be sufficient. How are people supposed to get photo ID if they don't have a passport or a driving license? Well, they will be able to apply to the local council to get a free photo ID card. But what we know is that lots of people don't actually get round to going onto the electoral register. In fact, many people think this is done automatically and they don't need to apply or do anything. So put an extra barrier in. Now, you might be able to do this online, but there are a lot of people, perhaps older people, stereotypically, not always online. 
and able to scan in photographs and send them to the council. And then you've got other people who would say, well, I'll go down to the council offices, but they have to take time out of work to do that if they're working, or perhaps they've got caring responsibilities and they have to take time out to do that. And in practice, what will happen is a lot of people will not apply for this photo ID card, so they won't be able to vote. And as I say, there's no need to do this because the polling card is already issued by the returning officers. And that should and be I've the job. Some estimates, Chris, and I, I don't know whether you think these are fair and reasonable estimates, that as many as two million people could be deterred from voting as a result of this proposal. That's right. The government estimate was that something like 2.1 million people don't have this form of ID at the moment. And when it's very hard to get people onto the voting register in the first place, uh, it, it's not much more than four in five or a little over 80 percent of people who should be on the register to vote are actually on the register to vote. So if you then try to say there's an extra barrier, the photo ID, um, that will stop a lot of people voting, which is why the House of Lords voted by 199 to 170 to say that other forms of ID should be accepted, not necessarily photo ID. And this comes back, I think, next Monday, doesn't it? April the 25th into the into the Commons. So the, the Commons can either accept your amendments or, because we do live in a parliamentary democracy, they can vote to overturn it and insist on photo ID. Well, we've got a stage to go before that. Uh, April the 25th is when the House of Lords returns and we've got to complete what's called the report stage on the bill. So next Monday, the biggest issue of controversy will be the Electoral Commission, where the government is basically seeking to take control over it and end its independence. And since it's been set up over the last 22 years, most people have accepted that there should be an independent watchdog, which has the job of advising the parties on compliance with the law, if necessary, taking action to insist on compliance with the law, particularly in relation to finance issues of donations to parties and party spending, and also to impartially advise Parliament as to possible changes in election law. But what the government is seeking to do is to say that in future, the Electoral Commission will be subject to a policy and strategy document. And that will be written by Michael Gove as the rele relevant Secretary of State. So putting a leading Conservative cabinet minister in charge of writing a policy and strategy document which will dictate how the electoral commission operates means that you're actually ending the principle of independence of the electoral commission <laughs> many people will see a, a rich irony here not only the irony of unelected members of the house of lords like yourself seeking to protect democracy as you would see it but the fact that we are sending support to ukraine in defense of its desire to be a free and democratic nation whilst we here in the uk seem to be chipping away willfully at our own democratic basis Absolutely. I mean, I'd like to quote for a minute uh, another leading Conservative parliamentarian, uh, Patrick Cormack, now Lord Cormack, in the House of Commons for a very long time. In fact, I think he was father of the House. He's now a Conservative peer. He said when this bill uh, was introduced to the House of Lords, and I'll quote him, it is grotesque that we have this bill before us while people are literally dying for democracy. And he said that he was um, strongly critical of government plans to effectively 
end the independence of the Electoral Commission. So, yes, this opposition from a lot of people. And as you say, it is ironic, unelected lords trying to preserve democratic principles. But that's sometimes what happens when a governing party tries to abuse its majority in the House of Commons to try and change the rules of the elections in its favour. It's a bit like Manchester City won the premiership last season. So Manchester City can change the rules of the premiership so that Manchester City can have 13 players and all the other teams can only have nine players. It wouldn't be seen as being fair, but that's what effectively they're trying to do in political terms. Yeah, I suppose, you know, when we're talking about the regulation of elections, that can seem to many people to be arcane, to be irrelevant to their daily lives. And this part of the bill is perhaps the one that has received the least bit of attention, certainly from from mainstream media. How do you persuade ordinary people, for want of a better phrase, that this actually really does matter to them? Well, I think many people think that there should be some control over the political parties, but it has to be independent. And we have this independent commission at the moment with nine commissioners. Now, eight of the nine members of that commission have actually written to all parliamentarians to say that what the government is proposing would end the independence of the commission and make it unworkable to suggest it's an independent watchdog. And this has come about, well, there's perhaps, as you say, not a lot of interest in the mainstream media about the detailed work of the Electoral Commission. There was a lot of concern in the mainstream media about the Conservative Party's general election campaign in 2015 when they won a majority. And the concern was they were getting round election spending rules by targeting their vast national resources on specific constituencies. And they were doing this in particular in the Thanet South constituency, where they wanted to stop Nigel Farage from winning. Well, the Electoral Commission investigated this, uh, and as a result of the Electoral Commission's investigation, and it went to the Supreme Court to confirm and clarify the rules, and then to the Crown Court to see whether or not the Conservatives had been found guilty, their agent and their candidate in the constituency were acquitted, as I think was rightly the case. But the most senior official, someone who worked for the Conservative campaign headquarters, was given a significant suspended prison sentence, only suspended because of extreme extenuating personal circumstances. And it confirmed that the law was broken, that bussing in hundreds of party workers, putting them up in hotels, paying for their meals, was breaking the principle of our election laws, which have operated since Gladstone's era, trying to say you shouldn't be able to buy a constituency by having a lot of wealth. And this has come about, basically, uh, the attempt to change and take control of the Electoral Commission, as I think retaliation by the Conservatives for the role the Electoral Commission played in actually acting properly as a watchdog on that occasion. And shortly after that, they made sure that the chair of the Electoral Commission, who was doing, in my view, an extremely good job, a very senior former civil servant, Sir John Holmes, well, they didn't renew his term of office. They forced him out effectively. And then you had the Conservative Party chair at the time threatening the Electoral Commission with complete abolition if they didn't do what the government wanted. Well, they're not now trying to abolish it, but they are trying to take control of it. And that is a serious threat to democracy. As many of the... Yes. So, as I'm today, listening to you, Chris, I'm thinking some people might see a parallel here 
between uh, the, the Electoral Commission having stood up to the government and now finding itself in all probability being defanged by the government and Channel 4, whose news operation has been fiercely critical at times of the government, now being threatened with privatisation. Are, are we too cynical to see a parallel there? Oh, no, I think there's a very clear parallel. Um, this is a government that doesn't like opposition. If actually they were doing things so well, they wouldn't be needing to change the election rules in their advantage or control the media. They get a lot of support from the mainstream media in the form of tabloid newspapers run by people like Rupert Murdoch, etc. But democracy relies on good, high-quality, independent journalism of the kind that Bylines is now producing, but which we've also had historically from Channel 4 and from the BBC. But I think what the government has been trying to do is tame the BBC by threatening its source of income, saying the licence fee won't be renewed or to be reduced in real terms. And this is in retaliation for the BBC giving fair and impartial coverage. And the same, I think, goes for Channel 4, where there is no case, there is no need to privatise Channel 4. It doesn't cost taxpayers a penny. And actually, if you privatise it, you're more likely to see it taken over by Amazon or Netflix or somebody like that. And I think what the government would like to see would be something like Fox News, which they have in the United States to um, support people like Donald Trump. They'd like to see broadcast media like that, which is not impartial and which makes it easy to win elections in the future. So that's also, I think, a threat to democracy. And when we look at this arc of measures. I, I know ministers sometimes talk about a suite of measures. You take the attempt to nobble the Electoral Commission. We talk about voter ID. There's one other piece uh, of this jigsaw I just wouldn't mind drawing our listeners' attention to, Chris. And this is the proposal to remove the 15-year limit on voting rights for British citizens living overseas. And critics of the bill say that this will disproportionately favour older, richer voters. So we have voter ID, which works against poorer uh, minority ethnic voters. We have a proposal here which would effectively increase the franchise for older, richer voters living abroad. Because at the moment, if you live abroad for 15 years, you can't vote, but the proposal is that henceforth, should the bill become an act, then you will be able to continue voting in UK elections. Indeed. But it's not actually the extension of the franchise, the rights of UK citizens living overseas to vote, that I think is the problem. The problem is about the right to donate from overseas. And at the moment, under our laws, donate unlimited sums of money to the part of your choice. And of course, you're going to get the situation with billionaire tax exiles able to give unlimited donations, presumably large to the Conservative Party. And at the same time, although it's not in the bill, the government plans to increase massively the amount of money that political parties are allowed to spend in general elections. So I think we need to say... If you're a UK citizen living overseas, but you continue to have your interests in the UK in terms of perhaps you're paying UK taxes, your pension might come from the UK, and perhaps you still have family who are at school in the UK and things like that, okay, you have a say. But the government's not doing anything to make it any easier for people living overseas to actually vote, because generally they vote by post. And by the time the nomination's close in the election and the postal 
ballot papers are sent out, it's usually too late for them to return them. So they're not really doing what they should be doing to help UK citizens vote. And in my view, what they should be doing is creating dedicated constituencies like they do in France for overseas voters. So that French citizens living in London, for example, elect a member of the French National Assembly, but from French citizens living in London. So we could have a few constituencies like that. But what we're going to do is say that the electoral register in several constituencies will now get thousands more citizens living overseas. But they're not going to be immediately concerned about the Barnstable Hospital or a bypass or whatever the local issue is. So it would have been better to give them constituencies. But the government is doing this, in my view, because of donations. Parliament decided... Just, just so we're, just so we're clear, Chris, I mean, technically, sort of in, in law, in the letter of the bill, though, it is increasing, it, it is ensuring that if you uh, live abroad and have lived abroad for 15 years, currently that's a cut-off point after which you're not allowed to vote. So the bill says that you would be able to continue voting. So in that sense, it is increasing the franchise. But you think that's small fry, really, compared to the fact that you will, it, it, the 15-year on being able to make 15-year limit on being able to make donations will be removed. That's, that's what you think they're after. I think that's what it's all about. And it's inconsistent how they're doing this. And there are many unanswered questions about how people who've lived overseas for more than 15 years will be able to get back on the electoral register. And the government, oddly enough, is suggesting, well, actually, if I go, go back for a second, the 15-year limit had some logic because electoral registration officers keep the records of who's on the voting roll for 15 years. So you could go back to check if someone was on the voting roll in the last 15 years. Once you abolish that 15-year limit, you actually find that people will say, well, I was living here 25 years ago, but there's no electoral roll. And in some cases, there may be no house anymore. It might have been demolished. So they're suggesting that people can go on the electoral roll if perhaps they provide a 20- or 30-year-old utility bill if they've got one, or some other documentation. So they're suggesting compulsory photo ideas required for people living in the UK to go to a polling station, but they don't need such stringent requirements at all for someone to go onto the electoral register living overseas. And their motivation is donations. In 2009, Parliament decided that non-DOMs, those are people who are supposedly living abroad most of the year for tax purposes, so they don't pay UK taxes, shouldn't be able to donate to political parties. But the government since 2009 has never enforced that. So one of the things we're trying to do in the House of Lords is say, well, actually, if you're a non-DOM, like until recently, Rishi Sunak's wife was, if you were non-DOM, you shouldn't be able to donate to political parties. And if we can't actually get that through, we'll try to say there should be a cap. I'd suggest perhaps £7,500 or something like that you can give from a board if you're on the electoral register to a UK political party. But what's going to happen in future will be you can give £1 million, £5 million, 20 million out of the billions that you have, not pay you taxes, and you can finance an entire political party. And there's an old adage, he who pays the piper calls the tune. So that's very dangerous for democracy. Mm. So what we have then, uh, Chris, are a, a whole range of measures. And if you take any one of them, Individually, there may well be legitimate criticism raised and there may be arguments for them as well on the other side. When you take them 
as a whole, this is quite a profound change, I would suggest, in the British electoral system. Fewer poorer people, fewer people from minority backgrounds are likely to vote under this system. More wealthy people who live overseas are likely to vote and will be encouraged to donate. And the body which supervises all this, the Electoral Commission, will be effectively controlled by the executive rather than being truly independent. What what do you think is really going on here? Well, it's fundamentally wrong in my view that the party that wins an election can then change the election rules in its favour. I think in the long run there should actually be a written constitution, which means you shouldn't be able to change such rules without the support, say, two-thirds of Parliament. But at the moment you need 50% plus one, and the government has a near 80 majority, and it tells people how to vote. So it's very hard to stop them doing this in the House of Commons. Now, it is ironic that the unelected House of Lords has to act as a break on abuse of power in the Commons. But the Parliament Acts of 1911 and 1949 were approved by both Houses of Parliament, the elected Commons, as well as the then hereditary Lords. And that gave the House of Lords power to make the government or the House of Commons think again, but also to delay legislation. So ultimately, the House of Commons can get its way. But what we could insist on in the House of Lords is with the very least delay these measures. And sometimes if you delay things, you actually stop them altogether. And what we'll be doing will be asking the government to compromise on, on things like photo ID, which is absolutely unnecessary, just accept simple forms of voter ID. Um, and that will be a sensible thing for them to do. You used a phrase earlier on and drew a parallel with the United States, and that phrase was voter suppression. Do you think that's what's going on in the UK? Absolutely, I do. And I would say two reasons to justify that above all others. One is the compulsory photo ID, which will be discriminatory. Um, but the other is actually the electoral registration process. Um, we have a system where forms go out to people telling them that they should register. But many people still don't understand that they actually have to return the forms. Uh, the Electoral Commission did a survey showing that 60% of people think this is done automatically. Well, it should be. If, for example, you apply for a passport, they only issue a passport if you are a UK citizen, resident within the UK, and it'll show your age is over 18. So when you get a passport or when you get a driving licence, the state knows you're entitled to vote. So it should just put you on the electoral register. Instead, the government is trying to say, oh, no, no, even though we know you're entitled to vote, we're not putting you on the voting register. What we want is to have to apply because you have to opt in to the right to vote. But you don't opt in to the right to health care in this country. You don't opt in to the right to education. You don't opt in to the right to be defended by the country's armed forces. If you are a citizen, you get those rights. And the right to vote should come automatically. Were a state body be it the DVLA or the passport office or a local council issuing council tax bills, they should register you. But the government really doesn't want to see these people registered because many of the people not registered are young people who tend not to vote conservative, poorer people who tend not to vote conservative, or people from diverse communities who tend not to vote conservative. And I think this is actually fiddling the system for their advantage. And across the United States, 
every state controlled by the Republicans is trying to do things like change boundaries, create barriers for people to vote. In the states, you've got Republicans doing things like saying they'll open up a voting centre for people to register to vote, but they'll do it out of town where there's no public transport. So only people with a car can drive to the registration centre to register to vote. And the poorer people who live in the town, who tend to be democratic, have got no access to go to register to vote. So I think what the Conservatives are doing is looking at all these devious tactics from Donald Trump's Republicans and trying to apply them in the UK. And that's what Lord Woolley of Woodford, Simon Woolley, who's just published a very good uh, memoir called Saw. Simon Woolley's been leading a campaign in the House of Lords. He used to an Operation Black Vote. And he says simply, actually, that the laws should treat everybody equally and fairly. And that means everybody should be registered to vote. Mm, very interesting stuff. Uh, one other thing, uh, Chris, I just want to mention as well, which is a dimension of this is, uh, and again, r- relatively unheralded, I think, is that as part of this bill, there is a proposal to make our mayoral elections and our police and crime commissioner elections in England first past the post. Now, this isn't currently the case, is it? If, if I live, for example, in Birmingham, so I vote in the West Midlands, in the West Midlands mayoral election, and I can vote for my first choice, but I can also put my second choice and my third choice. And if my first choice doesn't get in as mayor, then my second preference is counted. And this is regarded as, a, I suppose, a more progressive system than first past the post. But the government, uh, apparently, with little consultation and with little fanfare, is simply saying that first past the post, henceforth, if the bill becomes an act, will be used to determine who should become mayor or who should become police and crime commissioner. Absolutely. It will make the um, mayoral positions and police and crime commissioner positions less representative of the people they serve, because it simply means the single biggest uh, party tends to win. So you might have a party that gets 30 or 35%, but the votes are split between all the others, the various independents, there are a lot of them, and the other parties. So somebody wins in a small minority of the vote. Now, the government tries to say that this has been too complicated for people to put two X's on a ballot paper. I'd say that actually is pretty simple, but if you wanted to simplify it uh, and make it even fairer, you'd let people vote one, two, three for mayoral and PTC elections, which are very different to uh, electing MPs. But the government introduced this at a very late stage in the Commons. It wasn't in the bill initially, so MPs didn't even properly scrutinise this. It came to the House of Lords, and the House of Lords thought, again, this is changing the rules to favour the governing party and make these mayors and PCCs less representative of people. But they managed to get it through the House of Lords by just seven votes. We will attempt, uh, as we always do on Byline, to get uh, a, an opposition voice, or in, in this case, uh, you're the opposition, and get a, a Conservative voice to defend these uh, changes, Chris, because I, th- I think it is important that they are challenged and they are scrutinised and that we do hear 
the arguments in favour as well. Not that I've been successful so far in my attempts to get a, a senior Conservative voice to defend these proposals. But you mentioned the fact that there are people, members of the Conservative Party in the House of Lords, uh, people like David Willits, uh, for example, but people like Patrick Cormack, who, who are supportive of the fact that, that you are challenging the bill as it's going through. This is true. And you have quite a few loyal Conservatives admit this is absolutely uh, not the thing to do. You have people like Lord Haywood, uh, Robert Haywood, um, who's very close, very senior Conservative. He says, you know, he's had uh, involvement in work trying to advise the government of Zimbabwe about how to try to make their elections more democratic. And he says he couldn't, in all conscience, recommend to people in Zimbabwe they adopt the sorts of measures which are in this election's bill. So where do you go with your opposition to this then? What is the, the procedure now in the Commons, in the Lords, and what hope do you have of defeating these measures? Well, I think on Monday we have a very good chance of defeating the government on the issue of ending the independence of the Electoral Commission. And we'll try also to do something about the unfairness of huge unlimited donations from overseas. But that one may be harder to win. What will then happen is the bill will finish its stages in the Lords, and it goes back to the Commons. And the government, because it has, you know, the payroll vote, all the ministers it pays, the parliamentary private secretaries, and all the people who want to be ministers, it can push a lot of things through. Even though there were critics there, like David Davis, the former Conservative Party uh, candidate for leader, who objects in principle to the idea of photo ID at polling stations. But if the government wins a vote, I hope the House of Lords will stand strong on the principle of defending the abuse of power by the House of Commons, by the party with the largest uh, number of MPs, and stop them doing this. And if the government then wishes to use the Parliament Act, it can delay these things for at least a year, but it won't want to do that. So I hope we might get to compromise. Uh, I think the proposals about the Electoral Commission are so dire, the government should simply withdraw them. And the committee in the Commons looking at this thought it should be withdrawn. And that's chaired by Conservative MP, majority Conservative members. On photo ID, they should compromise and accept the polling card and other forms of ID. And if they won't compromise, I hope the House of Lords will continue to resist what they're trying to do. Now, the House of Lords may be unelected, but actually we have people from no party affiliation, Labour, Lib Dems, Greens and Conservatives who don't agree with this. And I think we have a duty to stop the party in the Commons abusing its power. We were given those powers by the 1911 and 1949 Parliament Acts. Some people say you shouldn't object to something that's in the governing party's manifesto. But ending the independent electoral commission was not in the government manifesto. And photo ID, as opposed to some form of a voter ID, was not in the Conservative Party manifesto either. So I think we're on good grounds. So uh, your if you continue to resist on, on these key issues, the government can ultimately, using the Parliament Act, override the House of Lords, but it would have to defer the legislation for a year in order to do so. Is that correct? Yes, indeed. But it would be tricky in practice for them to actually imply the Parliament Act on this. So it would be far better 
that they came to a sensible compromise. They will try and say the Lords is unelected, but people like me will say, in all the time I've been there, 23 years, I've been trained to get an elected House. And in 2012, we actually got a big majority in the House of Commons for the House of Lords Reform Bill. But we had Conservative rebels who wouldn't go along with electing members of the House of Lords. And we had a Labour Party at the time, which for tactical reasons, wouldn't agree to a timetable bill, without timetable proposal, which would have allowed the bill to go forward. So 10 years ago, our attempt to democratise the Lords fell. So we are left with the powers that we have, powers given to us by both houses some time ago. I will continue to argue for elections to the House of Lords, which of course is Liberal Democrat policy and has been since at least 1911 when we tried to replace the hereditary principle, which was called by what's called the popular principle. But we haven't succeeded on that yet. Well, listen, reform of the House of Lords is uh, one for another day, but I'm extremely grateful to you for your time today, Chris, and thank you. And uh, we'll be following this debate very keenly and with much greater insight than we've hitherto had, or I, I will at least anyway. So thanks very much indeed for joining us. Really appreciate your time. That's uh, Chris Renard, Lord Renard, Lib Dem Peer, one of the leaders of the opposition to the elections bill currently going through Parliament. And uh, I just hope you feel a bit more informed after listening to that, as I say, I certainly am. Just to remind you as well that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, if you're listening on Catch Up, are funded by subscriptions and memberships to the Byline Times. If you get a, a subscription, you get a brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times, which has lots of exclusive content, but you, you're also helping to fund the Byline Times website, Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast byline tv as well so you're getting fantastic value for money and you're supporting free and fearless independent journalism get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com uh, chris renard lord renard thanks very much indeed we'll see you again soon on byline radio thanks for listening cheers now bye-bye